From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Earth is warming. Unless there are radical changes, a new report from the United Nations predicts a bleak future. We'll talk with a climate scientist from Boulder who contributed to the report about what it means for the western United States. Then, schools are scrambling to hire teachers as classes are about to start. And seven musicians incarcerated in Colorado are releasing a new album with the label Die Jim Crow Records. It is about redemption, this sort of miracle that even though you could be as damaged, you could actually grow. Plus, imagine storytelling lessons could help kids deal with stress. Imagine going into fifth grade after ending school online in fourth grade. Imagine being scared to get COVID. Imagine getting COVID and being quarantined in your basement. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Time is running out for humanity to act on climate change. Scientists have been shouting that message since the 1980s, but the world hasn't heard it. Earlier this week, the United Nations released a new scientific report showing the consequences. It confirms climate change is happening now, and it predicts a bleak future unless there are radical changes. Linda Mearns joins us now. She's a senior scientist at NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. She contributed to the UN report. Hi, Linda. Hi, Avery. This is the sixth report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The earlier reports all warned the world about greenhouse gas emissions. What's different this time? Ah, well, that's a a really key key question. I think uh, you're right. I appreciate your saying that um, scientists have been warning the world about this since the 1980s. But the warning has become more intense. And so for the first time, I think the report is really making it clear that climate change is an immediate threat. In other words, it's really happening now. It is not a future problem. Another important difference about the report is it's really focusing more on changes and projected changes in regional climate. And that's a really good move, particularly for the Working Group 1 report, which is about the climate science, because it's really focusing more on providing information that people need to understand what's happening in their specific region and how, for example, they could possibly adapt to the changes that come along, um, along with, of course, the uh, reduction in greenhouse gases that will be necessary. Well, help us understand a little bit about what's happening in the western United States and in Colorado. What's the projection for this area? Um, Well, Colorado is a tricky area for making uh, predictions because it's kind of an area where to the north, uh, one would see, for example, increases in precipitation on an annual basis. And to the south, uh, let's say in New Mexico, Arizona, and northern Mexico, 
we would see decreases in precipitation. Uh, an important factor is that the North American monsoon, which affects uh, Colorado in the summer, will decrease somewhat. So there are a few tendencies in precipitation, but even, even if the precipitation didn't change at all, because of the increased warming, we would tend to have drier conditions because of the evap evaporation and evapotranspiration, which would result in drying of soil, for example. Um, in terms of temperatures, temperatures will certainly be going up. Um, and how far, how fast is one of the critical issues. Because if we pass beyond a global temperature of 1.5 degrees, real damage will, there's already damage, but more systematic damage throughout the world will start. Um, and we really want to try to keep the temperature below 1.5 degrees. Uh, another important climate uh, factor is what will happen to snow. And snow is important in the West for a host of reasons. One of them being that snow is essentially nature's natural reservoir for providing us with water in other seasons. So the fact of the matter is, of course, that with the warming, we'll have decreased snow depth and snow cover. And this will certainly affect our water resources and more and more as time goes along. And it also has an effect on, for example, uh, the ski industry in terms of the viability of various ski enterprises. Hmm. So there's so many effects and it's hard to even parse them all out in one interview, but yes, there, you, are, you are hoping to help people connect with this, these results and these projections in a more personal way with an atlas. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, so I'm the author, the lead author for the North America part of the atlas. And it's not, you know, you think of an atlas, well, it's a collection of maps. But here it's a, light, it's a lot more than just a collection of maps. Uh, we actually have text. That's where the major climate changes and how we know these changes are happening and will continue to happen are written up in the atlas. And then there's this really amazing um, interactive atlas that people can really um, get into looking at data, the data in the other chapters and also in the Atlas chapter itself in more detail. And they can actually interact with the data to produce maps, uh, to look at the changes in the climate variables, but also very importantly, for example, the changes in these factors that we call climate impact drivers, which are those aspects of the climate that are really causing the impacts that we would be concerned about, like, for example, extreme heat, um, increased fire weather, flooding, uh, sea level rise. So it's, it's a great product, and uh, it'll be really interesting to us to see how people use it and what they think about it. And, you know, like we've been saying, a lot of these results are pretty bleak. For years, we've heard scientists, including you, say that the world can't afford more than 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. It's what many nations agreed to in the Paris Climate Accord in 2015. According to this report, is there any chance of meeting that goal? Well, um, yes, there is, but we're really kind of running out of time. And so there will be the uh, conference of the parties 
number 26 in Glasgow in November, where the negotiations around the Paris Agreement will continue. Um, and we really hope that the timing of this report will further galvanize nations to seriously make the commitments that we need to keep below 1.5 degrees. Now, in point of fact, right now, there's greater than a 50% probability that we will overshoot the 1.5 degrees sometime in the 2030s, which is actually pretty soon. Um, so we really have to get our act together very, very quickly. Uh, if we kind of don't do much in terms of mitigation, we'll probably by 2050 exceed two degrees centigrade. Um, and that is again, which is about, um, it's over three degrees, it's 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit in point of fact. So, and then the damage, for example, coral reefs will be completely gone by then. Um, so I think a lot of pressure needs to be brought to bear on um, countries as they go into the Conference of the Parties in Glasgow in November. We can still do it, but this time we really have to pay attention. We can't go on the way we have. And, you know, one of the things I really want to stress, and particularly about the West, is the problem of compound extremes. Um, and this is when you have more than one extreme happening at the same time. Um, and these compound extremes are particularly obvious to us sitting here in the West, and in particular, the combination of heat extremes, high temperatures, drought, as we're seeing particularly in California, but also in other parts of the West, and fire weather, extreme fire weather. And that combination is really very dangerous. And it also means that it's harder to fight in terms of adaptation if you have to be fighting three different extremes. And sadly, of course, what we're seeing right now, I'm sitting here in my living room, essentially breathing in climate change from the smoke coming from further west. Uh, and so my hope is that people will really see this and that they just recognize that these are extremes that are happening because of our actions, um, that the pro problem will finally be taken as seriously as it needs to be. You know, I suspect many people are wondering if you're saying that we are doomed unless we make those really radical shifts to keep us at that 1.5 degree mark before, and mm -hmm. it could happen as soon as 2030. If those radical shifts are not made, but say it warms by two degrees by 2050, does that mean that people are doomed? Give us a kind of scenario there. No, it, it, those limits, I mean, there was an earlier report a couple of years ago, basically called the 1.5 degree report. And that report was also very, um, very dramatic, but very scientific, in that it really showed that major disruptions to all sorts of human and natural systems would occur at that level. So if we go to two degrees, will we all just disappear? No, 
it depends upon how big of a world of hurt you're willing to suffer. Um, I think by two degrees, um, for example, for every degree, I mean, the, the intensity of heat extremes doubles. So imagine the situation that's going on now or that did in June, but is happening again in the Northwest area, that that starts happening with much greater frequency, like every other year. Um, so I think what you'd see is there'd be this greater frequency of the extremes that I already discussed at two degrees. Um, could we survive it? Yes. But that also means we would have to get adaptation plans in place that were really very stringent. In other words, create greater resilience for all the different systems and the natural ecosystems in the world. Um, so no, I'm not saying that at that point, um, the world would just collapse, but it's really just going to get worse and worse if we allow the temperatures and extremes that go along with that to continue to increase. You know, we heard from Max Boykoff. He's a professor of environmental studies mm -hmm. at the University of Colorado Boulder. He is concerned about how mm -hmm. the UN panel releases its work. And quoting him here, he said, this report can be scary. This report can raise attention, but it can also paralyze people from taking action. It can make people tune out. Linda, what do you think? Well, um, Max is a good colleague of mine. I very much respect his opinion. And I think he's right. Some people would tune out. But the thing is, the report does underscore that we can still do something about it. Um, that we can, if you look at some of the lower scenarios where we keep the emission of greenhouse gases relatively low, there are several scenarios where we can do that. It's just that since we've been, if you will, twiddling our thumbs for decades, um, it's just going to be harder. Um, to the degree that people feel turned off, um, I hope they won't. And quite frankly, the report quite deliberately goes into the fact that we can still do it. We can still keep to 1.5 degrees. That's in the report, in the mm -hmm. Working Group 1 report, so that people will not be turned off. Linda, I want to It's a tough balancing act. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Linda, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your research. Thank you, Avery. It's a pleasure. Linda Mearns is a climate scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder and lead contributor to the latest UN report on climate change. You can read more about its findings at CPR.org. Let's get some additional perspective now with CPR climate reporter Sam Brash. Hi, Sam. Hi, Avery. What stood out to you about what Linda had to say? I mean, Linda's clearly a brilliant scientist. She knows this report inside and out. I think that was really clear. And I think she puts it into perspective. I mean, what she said about we are choosing between worlds of hurt. We are choosing about who suffers and how much they suffer. I think that was made very clear um, 
by the latest IPCC report. And one thing I just do want to make clear is, is this is just the beginning of the way at, of the way the UN releases its latest scientific information about climate change. Uh, this this report that Linda was involved in really deals with the physical science of climate change. We're going to see more reports that deal more with the uh, the impacts of climate change to to society, some of the things it might do to our you know different systems, our economy, and then really looking at uh, policy as well will be in a third iteration and then a final one summarizing all of it. So I do want to just make clear that this is just the beginning about the physical science of climate change and what's happening on the planet right now. So we'll keep hearing about this. Let's talk about state policy. When it comes to climate change, Governor Polis signed a major climate bill in July, but it kind of sent a mixed message, didn't it? Well, I think that sort of depends on your perspective on different climate policies. Um, you know, he did sign this major climate bill, um, but at the same time, he, he shut the door to one environmental policy that's been favored by a lot of powerful environmental groups. That's a cap-and-trade policy. This is a, a market-based exchange where you issue allowances for pollution and then let companies buy and sell those allowances to incentivize, you know, decarbonization, basically. That's something Polis has really been opposed to for a long time. And he did have an executive order saying, I won't do it. Um, But his administration also passed a lot of policies like a new clean heat standard um, and stuff like that, that that might have some impact uh, when it comes to reducing emissions in Colorado. And why is that significant? You know, I think that uh, what we're seeing is Polis trying to be a different kind of democratic governor on climate change. You know, California has a cap and trade system. Washington is following it with its own similar carbon exchange. Um, but Polis is against that. You know, I think in general, we've seen he's interested in policies that are sensitive to the private sector, not exactly always what they want, but always um, informed by their input. You know, the cap and trade thing is one example. Another example is his administration was planning to have rules that would require big employee employers to come up with plans um, to limit people commuting to work by car. That got all kinds of resistance from industry groups, and his administration dropped that last month. So, you know, Colorado pa- is passing a lot of climate policies, but, you know, it, it's totally up in the air whether that's going to be enough to meet the huge challenge that Linda and other scientists are laying out. Sam, thanks for the insight. You bet. CPR climate and environment reporter Sam Brash. When we come back as school starts, are there enough teachers? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In 2012, Fred Harris watched cannabis legalization pass him by from a prison cell here in Colorado. Recreational pot was now legal, but that didn't change anything for him. And it left his teenage son in limbo. Like, so my son, I kind of just like consider a person like that dead, like, you know, unfortunately. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Here, Fred's story on the latest episode of On Something, available wherever you get your podcasts. Rumors that teachers would leave their jobs in droves because of COVID-19 ran rampant last spring. After an exhausting, uncertain year, many teachers in Colorado said that they weren't sure if they'd return. But fears of a mass exodus have largely proven overblown. Even so, as school starts, hundreds of teacher spots remain unfilled. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Back in April, it was the height of teacher hiring season. 
but no job fairs in person allowed, the 27J district in Brighton pushed forward with a virtual job fair. Supervisor Cynthia Ritter was doing the hard sell. It is very different from other school districts. She's talking to, after all, math and science teachers. They're like gold, precious and hard to come by. Ritter exudes enthusiasm and energy as she talks about the support, coaches, mentors, co-teaching, that teachers can tap into at 27J. I'm considering looking at potential leadership roles. And so I was wondering what that looks like in your district. Prospective science teacher Kayla Hensley wants a district where she can continue to learn and grow. Ritter gives her examples of how she can do just that. Hensley's taking a lot of notes. She and another candidate, Joey Tedeschi, who's considering a move to Colorado from Nashville, like that the district embraces taking risks in teaching. Tedeschi asks how much emphasis the district places on standardized tests. You put that pressure on yourself, but really that's not our driver. That's awesome. I appreciate the responses. That's actually exactly what I was looking for. But competition for secondary teachers, especially in the sciences, is fierce. Weeks from a new school year, districts are still desperate to hire special education teachers, occupational therapists, speech pathologists, and school psychologists, too. But they've been hard to find for years. The pandemic's fueled much bigger shortages in other areas. Custodians, we are shy of 17. Bus drivers, we are shy 25. That's Adams 12 HR director Myla Shepard. It's that way everywhere. As of last week, Denver needed more than 200 classroom aides and 100 custodians. Adams 12 was short 100 before and after school workers. The shortage is so bad that the district asked their classified workers union to come to the bargaining table in late July instead of waiting until October. We're not usually coming after a union saying we've got money we'd like to give you. (laughs) The agreement bumped everyone to $15 an hour or higher. Let's turn to rural districts. They're also struggling to find hourly workers. But they've also found this year has been harder to recruit teachers, even in subjects usually easy to fill. The Fort Morgan School District, an hour and a half northeast of Denver, is recruiting more teachers through J-1 visas than ever before. Particularly teachers from the Philippines to fill special education positions and English and social studies positions. The district's Brian Childress says he has to compete with neighboring rural districts who went to four-day weeks. That can be a perk for teachers. Rebecca Barron taught for 15 years in Fort Morgan. She loved the community feel. But this year was the year she looked an hour down I-76 to another district, 27J in Brighton. The metro district offered her $16,000 more a year. Living hand-to-mouth kind of a thing for teachers is not what should be happening, but that's what it was. So this district offered more money, and the four-day work week was definitely a bonus. 27J hiring director Michael Clough doesn't like how Colorado's system forces districts to compete for teachers. There are huge disparities in what metro area districts can pay teachers. That's because some can raise extra property taxes and some can't. In the metro area, we're competing against each other for teachers. So we went to the four-day in competition against other districts. Still, it was other things about 27J that sealed the deal for other teachers. About 150 new 27J teachers walked down a red carpet, Hollywood style, complete with cheerleaders and school district paparazzi. It's their first day of orientation. Remember Kayla Hensley, the note taker during the April job fair, and Joey Tedeschi? They're on the red carpet today, too. 
Hensley says the energy she saw at 27J was unique. At some other districts she considered, things were more formal, or recruiters just said things that were already on the website. It was like, Actually, we just want you to sit and do this very normal recipe version of first you do this, second you do this, third you do this. And I wanted to be a little bit more free in what I was doing. As long as schools stay in person this year, she'll get that chance. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. A new album comes out of Colorado today, recorded in one of the most unlikely places in the state. Tlashiwiki is a collection of songs recorded by Territorial, a band of seven musicians incarcerated at the Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility in Canyon City. Die Jim Crow Records put out the album. It's a music label for formerly and currently incarcerated musicians. The record showcases a variety of musical styles, including folk, blues, rock, indigenous chant, and hip-hop. America, the beautiful Forgive my sins again I don't want to feel lost today I don't want to die Fury Young is the founder of Die Jim Crow Records and producer of the Territorial album. He started working with incarcerated musicians in 2013. He joins us now from New York City. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you here. What was your motivation to start that record label? Well, I was a young activist, 23 years old, and I had a very deep passion for history and activism. And around that time, Occupy Wall Street had started and I got very involved in activism. But as some might remember, Occupy was very multi-layered and had a lot of things it was trying to address. So I wasn't quite sure what my focus was. When I came back to New York from L.A. in 2013, I read the book The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And at the time, I was listening to a lot of concept albums like uh, Roger Waters and Used to Death and Pink Floyd The Wall. I had had personal experiences with formerly incarcerated folks who were close to me. So it was sort of a confluence of factors just culminating and reading this book and saying, OK, this is the time. I have this idea and I want to try it. And why music? Why a record label? Well, the record label came way later. But in the beginning, when I decided to do this one album, it just felt like such a strong, powerful way, an emotional way to grab people's attention. So when I read The New Jim Crow, I loved the book, but it felt very much like it was written by a lawyer, um, written by a scholar. And I wanted more of the personal stories. I wanted to hear it directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak, from the belly of the beast. So you recorded with incarcerated musicians in Ohio. Where do you even begin with the process of making an album in prison? I imagine just getting inside is a big hurdle. Absolutely. It would take about a year before I decided, okay, I'm going to try to start reaching into some prisons to try to record. Because I had been writing to people inside and they encouraged me. They said, you clearly have a passion, you know, and you should should try this yourself. (laughs) So (laughs) I started reaching out to several arts groups that I found online and I connected with Dr. Catherine Roma, who was a choir director in 
Ohio prisons for over 25 years. And she happened to really love the project. And by the grace of God, somehow we got into Ohio. It would be several years before I'd gain access to another prison. Um, I was working a full-time job that whole time. And it was very piecemeal, Die Jim Crow, but I was still trying. And actually, Colorado was the next state that we got into. So tell us a little bit about this album recording for four days in the Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility. This was recorded in four days in April 2018. Me and my co-producer and engineer, Dr. Israel, went out to Canyon City and I had been communicating with these musicians prior to the session. So I knew a bit about what was scheduled, what was on the menu in terms of songs. At the time, they were quite specific to this Die Jim Crow one album that we were working on, which centered around three acts, pre-prison, prison, and re-entry. So we recorded several songs that were around those themes. In 2019, when we transitioned to becoming a record label after realizing we were just getting access now to several prisons and so many talented collaborators that it made sense, me and my deputy director, B.L. Shirell, were looking at the tracks and we realized, oh man, this is actually a whole album onto its own that was just recorded in four days. But okay, we, we got a full length LP. So those four days, as you can probably imagine, were very packed. We were scheduled very concisely. We didn't waste a moment. We recorded about a dozen songs, but we even had time for some improvisation at the end of the, the last couple of days. Help us visualize what that recording was like. What was your recording space? The band room was small. Um, I'd say it was about maybe like 11 by 15 feet or so. It was kind of gray and tan. <laughs> Lots of acoustic guitars, a couple keyboards, and it was right off to the side of a big gym. So there was like a little window that you could see into the gym from if you were in the band room. So, you know, occasionally guys would pop their head in and, you know, see, oh my God, what is this going on here? Because <laughs> we had come in and we'd set up this vocal booth made out of light stands and PVC pipes and sound blanket, moving blankets, really. So it was an interesting sight, I, I bet. Here's a song from the territorial record, Holy Rain. Listen. I was walking with my Savior There was something on my troubled mind My path was dark and heavy laden I needed light cause I was blind I was talking to my Savior The song Holy Rain off the new album Sloshy Wiki, recorded at Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility. The song Holy Rain, it closes the record. What can you tell us about that song? Well, that song was written 
in 2016, um, after the singer-songwriter Michael Tennyson was baptized, he is someone who had a very heinous crime, heinous, capital H, and had, had a very hard childhood, as you can imagine, you know, typical story, abuse, lots of trauma, torture, and he's been in prison since 87 and prior to that did six years from 80 to 86 in Wisconsin. And so the guys lived most of his life now inside. And that song, it's pretty much about his becoming a better person after all those years of damage that he did to his community. And Michael, who was a huge part of this project, he was the project director inside. He got all the other six guys together I speak to him regularly. He's contributed a lot of visual art for the project. He really has held it together. I think that ending with that song is a good capsule to take us to the end of the journey, right? It's an album of so many intensely dark moments. If you can make it all the way till the end of the album and get to Holy Rain, you do see that rainbow. And it is about redemption this sort of miracle that even though you could be as damaged as Michael Tennyson was, you could actually grow. Hmm. There's a lot of humanity here. What was it like to work with this particular group of seven musicians in Colorado Territorial? Our star, so to speak, was Kevin Woodley. Kevin is from Chicago originally. He's a blues singer. He's got a really warm presence. He is disabled. He was cancer and he was hooked up to an oxygen tank while singing some of these songs in the wheelchair and um, despite all those things he's positivity embodied you know in one person his attitude was incredible during these sessions and we have Dane Zealot Newton who did the songs America the Merciful and Battle Cry um, a newcomer to making music and just got in there quite bravely and <laughs> sang America the Merciful first, and we were all just blown away, you know, just an acoustic guitar and his voice is how we originally recorded it. Archie and Lefty, Philip Archuleta and Gilbert Pacheco, they are the two Native American musicians who contributed Nawa chants. Prior to that, we actually did a ceremony in which Archie blessed everyone with a feather and called good spirits into the room, and that song, Tleshi Wiki, which is, of course, the title track and the opening track, represents that. The, the lyrics are calling the spirits from all four directions. The album was originally slated for release sometime last year, then the pandemic hit. How did you use that delay to shape this album even more? Well, we were able to work with some really amazing musicians, and that extra time allowed us that opportunity to perfect a lot of these songs. We did two days in Nashville, and then those months during COVID was just about filling in some of the other blanks with very cool 
synth tracks, some additional percussion, some vocals as well. We actually recorded the artist Simply Naomi for this album, who I've been trying to work with for years. She was actually incarcerated in Pennsylvania, serving life without parole when I met her in 2015 and got out in 2019. And this was our long overdue first collaboration. I'm also curious about the title of the album, Tlashi Wiki. Tell me about that. Well, it's the calling of the spirits. That's what it means. And it really, I think, is true to the album in a lot of ways because you have seven musicians who make up the core of the band from completely different walks of life. You know, you've got this blues singer from Chicago. You've got this white guy who murdered five people and from Wisconsin. You've got this former gang guy from Denver. Um, you've got two Native American artists. It couldn't be more diverse. And I feel like in a lot of ways, you could sort of only make this album in an American prison. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Avery. Children dying founder of Die Jim Crow Records. The new Colorado territorial album, Flashy Wiki, is out today. You can hear more music and watch the video for the title track at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Students are returning to school across Colorado as early as today, depending on the district. Masks will be mandatory or at least recommended. It's another layer of potential anxiety after a year of remote pandemic learning. Some teachers are helping them put their emotions into words with a curriculum called the Imagine Project. CPR's Andrea Dukakis went to watch and listen. She shared that experience with us in June. Andrea, hi. Hi. We've been following this issue of kids struggling with mental health before and during the pandemic and ways to help them. This particular approach is about kids writing their feelings. How does it work? The idea is children experience a lot more trauma than we think, and they don't always understand it or have the words to talk about it. So in classes that have adopted this curriculum, students are asked to write a personal story using the word imagine. The best way to understand it is to hear from a kid. Hi, my name is Dominic, and I live in Greenwood Village, Colorado, and I'm 11. 
Dominic Mioli just finished up fifth grade at Bellevue Elementary in Greenwood Village. His teacher, Todd Daubert, heard about the Imagine Project from a teacher at a different school. And he says at the beginning of the school year, he tried it out and he thought it would help his kids in part deal with the stress and upheaval from COVID. Uh, Here is Dominic's essay. Imagine going into fifth grade after ending school online in fourth grade. Imagine starting off the school year required to wear a mask every day. Imagine being scared to get COVID. Imagine getting COVID and being quarantined in your basement. Imagine your family being split up because you and your mom have COVID. Imagine your dad and sister are upstairs and don't have COVID. Imagine feeling depressed and lonely in your basement. Imagine no one teaching you how to do online school. Imagine 14 days are over and you go back to school. Imagine many people distancing from you when you came back to school. Imagine people seeing you and backing away because they think you still have COVID. Imagine people finally knowing you don't have COVID and hanging out with you again. Imagine people in your family getting the vaccine. Imagine finally being able to see your grandparents after 10 months. Imagine hope. Mm, I can really, I can see his story. <laughs> what is the idea behind using that word, imagine? I think the beauty of it is that it's a simple way to help these kids get their stories out. And they can, but they're not required to read them aloud in class. This is all the brainchild of a Colorado woman named Diane Maroney. She's a clinical nurse specialist in psychiatric and mental health nursing. And about 10 years ago, she traveled around the country asking people to tell their stories using that word imagine. And she put those stories into a book. Then she tried it with children, and since then, tens of thousands of kids around the country and the world have written these imagined stories. What are some other things kids wrote about in Mr. Daubert's class this year besides COVID? I met another fifth grader in his class who wrote about the struggle she had growing up, this particular struggle. My name is Chloe. Should I say my last name? Sure. Cartwright, and I live in Greenwood Village. And here's the first part of Chloe's story. Imagine you're a three-year-old and you're so shy you couldn't speak out in public. Imagine you could only speak out around family members. Imagine your shyness reaches a limit where you need to learn ASL, American Sign Language. Imagine working tirelessly as a three-year-old toddler trying to memorize every sign as your tiny hands cramping and aching trying to learn sign language. Chloe goes on to write about how her parents hired a speech therapist to help her to one day be able to speak in public. And then more recently, how she learned about the Black Lives Matters movement and got involved. Imagine you make posters and put them out in the hall. Imagine you finally get your voice out that you've awaited for so long. Imagine that I get to share my voice out more many years to come. What did Chloe tell you about writing down her story? She says it helped her get her emotions out and made her feel really good to read it to her class. Since a lot of people don't know about it, and um, I, I guess my story just proves that shy people can become powerful people. 
Dominic, who wrote about how his classmates didn't want to get near him because of COVID, says he doesn't usually like to talk about his feelings. I just like hold it inside of me because it's just like easier not to tell anyone than to like tell people. But he had a similar reaction to Chloe's. He said writing about this particular experience, that loneliness of being trapped in his basement and separated from the outside world, just made him feel better. Andrea, you mentioned the kids' teacher, Todd Daubert. What did he notice about the program and its effect on kids? Mr. Daubert has taught at Bellevue for 30 years, and he said he's used a lot of different social-emotional programs with students, ones that allow children to role-play and practice coping with problems. But he says this particular approach is so simple and straightforward. On the very first day of the school year, Daubert had the class write about back in March of 2020 when schools suddenly shut down because of COVID. He started by reading his own story about having to say goodbye to his kids and not ever really getting to say goodbye. And they just walked out the door. I knew that was going to be their last day, I thought. But because nobody really made that call, they just walked away. And nobody had any closure or anything like that. And I knew every one of those students that I was working with <clears throat> had that experience from a child's perspective. And even though we were online and everything, it wasn't the same. As CPR has reported, this year has also been enormously difficult for teachers and tough on their emotional health, too. Mr. Daubert says he and the class continued to write Imagine essays throughout the course of the school year on a bunch of different topics as a kind of therapy. So it sounds like these stories benefit teachers as well. No question. And Mr. Daubert says he thinks it helps the kids with their hard skills, too. I want to create a climate where kids feel safe. They want to connect with me, with each other, so they can learn. Without that, learning doesn't even happen. I mean, you know, we can talk about academics all day long, but if a child is feeling unsafe or scared or nervous or any of those feelings along the way and there's no way to process that, learning won't happen. I wonder if there's any concern that revealing this stuff could make trauma worse for kids without follow-up counseling or that some children might regret that they've shared a story or that they get teased by other kids. Yeah, teachers like Mr. Daubert work with school counselors and refer kids to counseling if a child is struggling with something they can't handle. Mr. Daubert says they also have four agreements around these Imagine essays, that students understand that they will be uncomfortable sometimes, that they have to stay engaged, speak their truth, and know they may not find closure on an issue. And, and while the stories we heard earlier have positive endings, not all of them do. As you watch kids kind of go into very, very dark places with their stories, some of them just stop their stories right there. You know, I had a student writing about a divorce and being in a split family and having to juggle two expectations and homework and not showing up organized and all the stuff that goes with it. And then I simply said to him, I said, I said, now imagine how you like this to be in your future. Imagine what the future can be like. You know, I think it is important that we note that while the pandemic has exacerbated stress for kids and adults, mental problems have been on the rise for a while now. 
Right. This is not new. Well before anyone had heard of COVID-19, kids have been feeling extra academic pressure at school. They also deal with the social pressure that comes from social media. And they report a lot of existential angst, fears about things like school shootings, climate change, future debt. Diane Maroney, the woman who developed the program for kids back in 2013, remembers early on when she first asked a teacher friend to try having students write these imagined stories. She said the stories were really eye-opening. They talked about being bullied. They talked about, you know, loss, health issues, parents not being there, over-parenting. But was really scary is that three kids talked about maybe not wanting to be on this planet. And so I thought, wow, this is a window in the psyche. So I kept going and worked with any school. Anybody would have me from homeless kids to affluent kids. Maroney offers the curriculum free online and says her goal this year that she admits is a bit lofty is to reach a million kids. A lot of stories. Yeah. You spoke earlier with Children's Hospital Colorado. They declared the state is experiencing a youth mental health crisis. What do they mean? They spoke about emergency room visits being way up for kids having mental health crises. The bulk of those admissions had been for kids who have thoughts of suicide or have attempted suicide. Doctors have called on the governor to ensure that there are more beds for kids who need them. Right now, there aren't nearly enough. And to provide more money to help these kids. Colorado ranks near the bottom of states for funding children's mental health. And schools also need to be looking for approaches to help kids express their feelings and know they're not alone to possibly head off some of these major crises. Bellevue Elementary says it plans to introduce the program for all grades next school year. Teachers will do the curriculum as well. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks. The Imagine Project teaches children to write personal stories and read them to classmates. And that's our show for today. Thank you to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill with special thanks to Daniel Mesher. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.